Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. This morning we are continuing a sermon series uh, that we've been in uh, for the last several months, uh, looking at Paul's first letter to the young church in Corinth. This is uh, a church that had been in existence for about five years, and Paul is writing a letter to them to help them sort out uh, how they should live out their faith in the midst of a pluralistic Roman culture, in the midst of a culture where they were often in the minority, often shaped and pressured by the world around them. And he lays out what it means for them to be a cross-shaped community, a community that learns what it means uh, to be a full human being through looking at the cross of Jesus Christ and his love and his death. We come uh, this morning to what may honestly, and I don't say this, I'm not exaggerating, uh, I think this is the hardest passage in the Bible that I've ever uh, had to try to preach. Um, it, is, uh, it is confusing at times. It is a passage where Paul is dealing with an issue that seems obscure and bizarre to us. Should women cover their heads in worship? Using an argument uh, that is alternatingly confusing or offensive uh, to us uh, at different moments. And so we are uh, all, especially me, uh, but all of us are going to need uh, God's grace and his wisdom to show us what he has for us uh, in this portion of his word. Uh, but if you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our reading today is from 1 Corinthians eleven two through 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For a woman was made from man, so a man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears his hair long, it is disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. All right, you can be seated. I told you, it's a, it's a tricky, it's a tricky passage. <laughs> In light of a passage like that one, I want us to consider a question. Is Christianity good news for women? Is Christianity good news for women? Uh, women in our world could use some good news. 
Um, perhaps one of the more eye-opening books that's been released in the last decade or so is one called Half the Sky uh, by Nick Kristoff and Cheryl Wudun. And in that book, they look at the ongoing inequality between men and women uh, the world over. They focus on the developing countries, uh, particularly in Africa and Asia. But looking at the way that life for women in the world today, in, contemporary, in the contemporary world, is still dramatically different than it is for men in the world. How women face uh, shorter life expectancy, uh, how young girls uh, are routinely uh, either aborted or abandoned in childhood, how they are vulnerable to assault and to violence, uh, to rape, to slavery, to health risks, few educational and career opportunities. Uh, that the world is still dramatically unequal uh, for men and women. One eye-opening quote in this book says, more girls were killed in the last 50 years precisely because they were girls than men killed in all the wars of the 20th century. More girls are killed in this routine gender side than in any one, dec in any one decade than people were slaughtered in all the genocides of the 20th century. The equivalent of five jumbo jets worth of women die in labor each day. And the risk of maternal death is 1,000 times higher uh, in, poor, in a poor country uh, than in the West. So in a world like that, uh, it's worth asking, is Christianity good news for women in what uh, our sisters deal with uh, in the world? Of course, we can say in one sense, yes, if you look globally uh, at the countries where women have the greatest exposure uh, to good uh, health, uh, to longer life expectancy, uh, to more of a voice in, in politics, in their career, more opportunities in education. Uh, the countries in the world where women have the most opportunities and protection under law are, generally speaking, uh, those in which the church has had the deepest and widest influence over history. In places in the world where the church has not touched uh, or has less of an influence, we see, in general, uh, fewer rights for women. So you can look globally and say, yes, we can see that the church, the good news of Christianity has been good news for women. And yet, uh, we can also look uh, at Christian subcultures, at churches uh, where women are marginalized, where their voices aren't heard, where uh, patriarchy and misogyny actually order uh, the life of the church far more than the scriptures. We can look, uh, we've seen it seems again and again, even in contemporary America, stories of women in the church being subject and vulnerable uh, to harassment, to abuse. We've seen men be able to, uh, to cover over and to evade responsibility uh, for the harm that they've done to women. And so, uh, is Christianity really good news for women? You know, at first glance, this passage is an odd place uh, to take that particular question. Uh, because it is, uh, you know, this, this passage is wrapped up in some cultural concerns in the ancient Roman world that are very, very difficult for us to think through, to unravel. But in it, uh, in this passage, uh, I think that Paul uh, holds out for us uh, some real hope for how we can navigate gender and gender difference in our culture and in the church. It's worth looking at this passage because it's precisely this passage and others like it uh, that have been used to, uh, to falsely teach that there's kind of a hierarchy of being in the world, that God is at the top and then men and then subjected under men are women. 
And yet, if we come to really understand what Paul is doing in this passage, I think we see that it is uh, far better news than that and uh, far more helpful for us in our lives. So the issue that has presented itself in Corinth is this. Should the person serving in leadership in the gathered worship of Christians, should the person who's using their gifts in service cover their head or not cover their head? Should they do so with their head covered or uncovered? So we're going to have to ask, well, why would you cover your head? What did that mean in that world? And why does Paul give two different answers? Because Paul's answer is, simply, is, is uh, it depends. It depends on if the person praying or teaching should cover their head. It depends if it's a man, they should not cover their heads. And if it's a woman, she should cover her head. And so what on earth is going on uh, in this passage? Well, we know from archaeological and historical study that the common practice in Greek and Roman religion was for the priest presiding over a service in the temple, for the priest making the sacrifice in a temple, to pull his toga up over his head to symbolize that he is the priest and that he's serving in a priestly capacity. We have this in sculpture. We have it described in books. We have even statues uh, of Caesar uh, depicted with his hood up over himself, his toga up over his head. One of the most famous of these was actually discovered in uh, Corinth itself, a statue of Augustus Caesar with his head covered because by that time, uh, the Roman Caesar had taken the title Pontifex Maximus. He was the chief priest of the Roman people, not only their political ruler, but also their high priest. And so uh, the high priest, the priest officiating over the service in a pagan temple, would regularly cover their head as a symbol that they were the high priest, that they were the one uh, to be paid attention to in that setting. And so Paul says, uh, in the light of that background, that it depends on whether you should or should not cover his head, your head. He says a man should not cover his head when he does what's called praying or prophesying in the assembly, when he's either leading the prayers or teaching the people. Uh, he should do so without his head covered. And essentially, what he, I think his argument is, it says here in verse 4, uh, that to do so with his head covered would be to bring shame, to bring dishonor to his head, which we're told in verse 3 is Christ, that the head of every man is Christ. And so for a man to, to pray, to prophesy, to lead in the service with his head covered causes a, a dishonor to Christ because the man would in, in a sense be claiming, I am the high priest here. I am the one who's in charge. And like so much in Corinth, this is the case of somebody claiming more honor and authority for themselves than they should be claiming. Paul's saying that, that, that it's Christ himself is the only high priest of his people. Christ himself is the only king of his church. He's the only leader, the only teacher, the only high priest for his people. When a minister stands up and opens the word or stands behind the table and, and distributes communion... I do that not as a high priest. I don't do that as someone with some kind of special access to God. I do that as someone who stands as a representative of our great high priest, someone who draws all of us together to our common priest, our common head. So a Christian minister, a man serving in that capacity, shouldn't claim the honor for himself of mediator between God and man, right? The one that you have to go to or pray through or work through if you want to have access to God. Because in Christianity, only Christ grants us access to God. Amen. He alone is the priest through whom we worship and through whom we gather. Amen. But he says, a woman 
When she prays or prophesies, when she prays in the assembly or teaches, she should cover her head. Because you see, there were competing cultural things going on here. It might be interpreted, right, if someone covered their head that they were serving as a priest. But at the same time, a woman who, in in the culture at the time, would usually have her head covered, if she went and had her head uncovered, it would imply something far more scandalous, uh, both to the church and to their neighbors. You see, in a way that seems downright strange to us, uh, in the Roman world, a woman's hair was considered a part of her reproductive system. This is, this is going to require you to take my word for this a little bit. Um, but a woman's hair was considered linked not only to her allure as a woman, to her sexuality, but also tied to her fertility, that long hair made for a more fertile woman. Uh, And that's why it says that if a woman were to cut her hair off or to shave her head, uh, that that would be a shame to her, that it would bring dishonor on her. At the same time, a woman with her hair down would be just as scandalous as if she were to reveal other parts of her reproductive system uh, in the church service. So it was a matter of modesty and propriety for a woman in that setting to cover her hair. For a woman with her hair down was viewed as being uh, perhaps bending the norms of gender. They were viewed as likely trying to indicate that they were available sexually. And it would have brought scandal, not only on the church, to, to people would, would, would understandably draw some confusion about why she was doing this, but to their neighbors, uh, it would cause others to look in on this new uh, Christian religion and cause some kind of scandal. Because it wasn't uncommon uh, in the ancient Greek and Roman religions for priestesses in the temple to actually let their hair down, to have their hair uncovered. And often it was, uh, precisely as it was intended, a symbol of uh, sexual availability. And so Paul is saying, in this world, in the midst of this potential for misunderstanding on two sides, where you might be misunderstood as taking uh, the authority of a priest, or you might be seen is trying to bend gender norms or reveal yourself in a way that was improper. In balance of those differing cultural messages, men ought to keep their head uncovered. Women ought to keep their heads covered. And so that uh, essentially is Paul's advice uh, in this situation. You know, what, what on earth does that mean for us? Aside from you feel, ladies feeling better if you're not wearing a hat today, uh, men feeling better uh, if you have short hair instead of long hair, uh, what good could come of a passage like this? Well, I think if we pay attention to it, that Paul helps us here to navigate something that is very much a live issue in our world, which is how do we navigate what is given and set about gender? And how do we handle what is culturally normed about gender? Right, the scriptures say there are certain things that are set, that you are created man or woman. You're created with a God-given gender. But also, there are other cultural norms that come to surround, symbols that come to surround gender. Right, uncovered heads or covered heads mean something different now than they did then. And so, to live our lives with wisdom and faithfulness and grace uh, in the world that we find ourselves in, We need to be able to navigate what's fixed and what's flexible. What's given to us by God and where do we have have to learn how to apply the scriptures 
to things that are matters of cultural preference. First, as it pertains uh, to our God-given and created gender. You know, every one of us uh, comes into this world, uh, male or female. There are no uh, generic people born. We are uh, gendered creatures, born into a world in which from our earliest days, uh, for the most part, we live our lives as either masculine or feminine, male or female. The Corinthians, uh, who knew, as Paul tells us in verse 2, they knew, as he says, you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. So he commends them for this, that they know his way of life, they know his way of ministry, they know his way of teaching, and they're, they're, they're attempting to live it out and to follow it. So undoubtedly, they would have known what was one of Paul's teachings, uh, perhaps even the way that he baptized people. Uh, in Galatians chapter 3, uh, verse 26, uh, verse 27, excuse me. He says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen. So they would have known this about Paul's teaching, that he taught that there was no, there was no Hierarchy, Jew over Greek. There was no hierarchy, free over slave. There was no difference as a hierarchy, male over female. You are one in Christ. They would have known this. They would have known his way of life and ministry. They would have known the ways that he leaned, uh, as he said, on the service of women in their co-ministry with him. Whether it was the deaconess uh, Phoebe, whether it was Priscilla and Aquila, whether it was Lydia through, uh, through whom he worked to found the church in Philippi, he they would have known that Paul was someone who treated women uh, with the dignity of treating them as co-laborers in the Christian missionary movement. They also would have known, of course, uh, of the record of Jesus, who so honored women that his first appearance uh, post-resurrection was to a group of women who made women uh, the first to announce his resurrection to the other disciples. So in the light of that, they would have known there's neither male nor female. All are one in Christ Jesus. And what we think happened in Corinth was that they took that message that there is no male or female, and they thought, okay, because we are redeemed in Christ, redemption in Christ means to transcend our physical bodies, that we should seek an ideal in which we are no longer either men or women, but that we try to blend together in a kind of genderless, sexless existence. We've seen that come up earlier uh, in the letter where, uh, where Paul is dealing with women and men both abandoning their spouses uh, to live lives of celibacy. We see it where they're avoiding marriage. Paul there urges them, no, 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 come together. Right In this life, in Christ, you are still gendered beings. Christ doesn't mean to help you to transcend being a man or transcend being a woman, but rather to, to, to show you what it means to be a Christ-like man or a Christ-like woman. Later on, we're going to see that they took this, uh, this belief that Christianity was about transcending physical reality, and they're going to believe that, uh, that their hope is not for a physical resurrection, even perhaps that Christ wasn't physically resurrected. But Paul corrects them on this. Christianity is always a bodily religion. Right? We're told that the word became flesh and dwelt with us. 
right? Jesus was born uh, as a young boy who grew into a man, right? He was born into a particular culture. He was born with all the limitations of our physical existence. He was resurrected in a physical body. He even still at the right hand of the Father rules in a physical body. But Christianity isn't about transcending the created realities of this world, but living within them faithfully. And so that's why Paul urges them to maintain uh, the gender differences that they experience as men and women, to not try to dress the same, to not try to blur those lines, but for men uh, to live as men, for women to live as women. Paul says, you shouldn't mistake my teaching that there is broad equality and inclusion of women to mean that there's no distinction or no difference between men and women. You know, it's almost hard for us, excuse me, to imagine a life with distinction and difference, but without prejudice and oppression, right? In a fallen world, difference is often manipulated as a reason for oppression, Right? We take our differences in ethnicity and race, and it becomes an occasion for racism, white supremacy, and oppression, doesn't it? Historically, it has done that. In the same way, historically, thank you, Brother Willie. Historically, uh, the difference between men and women has been an occasion for, uh, for misogyny, for sexism, for oppression. And Paul, in this passage, is inviting us to consider that in Christ, difference, transformed by the gospel, might be the means, not for violence and oppression, but for beauty, for order, for flourishing, for reconciliation. That you don't need to avoid difference and to avoid distinction in order to have beauty. Right, of course, we believe that uh, when it comes to ethnicity and race, don't we? But it's not about minimizing or erasing our difference, our cultural difference. But about learning to come together to embrace one another, to appreciate those differences as an occasion for God's reconciling beauty. In the same way, the differences between men and women were called to treat not as an occasion for oppression, but as an invitation for learning. Uh, what God might be teaching us and might be showing us, uh, even in our differences. So Paul lays a biblical and theological groundwork for equality with difference, equality with differentiation. Notice what he says here. He goes all the way back to Genesis. Uh, from the very beginning, actually, he's, ta- he's talking about Genesis language here in, chapter th- in uh, verse 3. When he says the head of every man is Christ, the head of a, uh, the head of a wife is her husband, pro- probably better translated, uh, the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. That language of headship has often been misunderstood. Head uh, as a metaphor uh, has been used different ways in the, in the scriptures. Here it has been taught to mean that headship is domination. It's a, a higher value, it's a higher level of authority. But friends, if we, if we translate head that way in this passage, we end up doing violence to the Trinity, right? It says that Christ, that God is the head of Christ. We know uh, theologically that the Son and the Father are equal. They're equal in worth, equally worthy of glory, equally worthy of our worship. 
that the Son and the Father uh, are, are existing as divine equals. That the Son will sometimes take a subservient role as he does when at the Father's command he comes to earth. But headship here has to mean something other than simply superiority. Most of the commentators on the passage, especially our earliest commentators, believe here that head means something closer to source. Um, The way we might still use the language of headwaters to describe the beginnings of a river. Right, and if you look at it that way from from the creation account, man was created by Christ, was created by God. The woman was created out of man. She was created out of Adam's rib. Christ proceeds from the Father, that he arises from the Father as the eternal, uh, though begotten Son. And so headship there, uh, Paul is taking us back to the Genesis story. He's taking us back uh, to origins. When Eve was created... She was created uh, to be, as, as unfortunately many of, our, uh, many of our translations translate it, to be Adam's help, to be his, uh, some, uh, I think the King James even says help meet or help mate, which is a word that we don't use very often. Uh, the Hebrew word there is the word ezer. And while it does mean help, it does mean help, its context is one of a military setting. In fact, the only other person that's referred to as an Ezer in the Old Testament is God himself. When he is described as Israel's help, it means that he's the one who comes to Israel's defense, to Israel's aid. So when Eve is described as Adam's help, it doesn't mean, fellas, uh, that she washes his clothes, cooks his dinner, pours his drink, and raises his kids. Right? It doesn't mean uh, that Eve was made to be Adam's personal assistant. It means that she was made to be his ally. That she was made to be his co-warrior in the work of the kingdom. That they were to face life in this world arm in arm, pushing back the darkness and chaos of the world, cultivating the garden, extending God's reign. That they were made to face this world as Ezers, uh, as allies in battle. Paul puts it this way in verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man independent of woman. We see this in the early chapters of Acts, men and women arm in arm advancing the kingdom. We see it here in the church in Corinth, men and women each having their gifts deployed to serve. Right, We're told that the men and women are both praying and teaching in the gathered assembly, and Paul nowhere tells them, well, actually, that's a man's job. Now, there's other passages that we're going to look at as we come into Corinthians where we're going to have to sort through some more difficult stuff on this. But here, Paul simply affirms that when you're leading, when you're serving, when you're giving your gifts, do so in a way that embraces your gender. Do so as men. Do so as women. But for the sake of God and his kingdom, do so together. Do so as allies in the battle. Paul says in saying that there is no independent man or independent woman, that we cannot be who we are created to be alone. Men, you cannot be the man you were created to be without the gifts, perspectives, uh, and wonders of women in your life. Women, you cannot be who you were created to be 
without the gifts and perspective and blessing of men in your life. We can never be as a church who we are called to be if we only lean on the gifts, perspectives, and guidance of half the church. Right? We need one another, arm in arm, facing the darkness together in our churches, in our homes, in our community. So, Paul talks about gender as a created difference. But then he talks about the cultural norms that surround gender. Right? If, if gender is created, we're created male or female. Culture is what we do with God's creation. Right? Culture is the way that we, uh, that we live out and live within God's creation. The, what we make out of the world that God has made is our cultural world. Every culture has norms that surround gender. Right? Every culture does. Think about it in our, in our culture. Um, why do you associate pink with little girls and blue with little boys? I mean, there's babies, baby boys don't come out, come out blue. Little girls don't come out pink. Right? It's actually a fascinating story. Historically, uh, we associate pink with little girls and blue with little boys because baby clothes com- companies want you to. They want to sell you new stuff when you have a little girl or when you have a little boy. Um, right? But that is a cultural construct that comes around gender so that in the West, we tend to identify pink with girls, blue with boys. In other cultures, pink is almost entirely associated with masculinity. It's interesting. It's hard for us to think about that. But what Paul says, you know, if Paul was uh, a bit progressive in the way he talked about gender, right, with men and women using their gifts together, on culture, he is a bit conservative in a way that seems odd to us. Because essentially his answer to the Corinthians is this, you ought to live within the cultural norms that are given to you. You ought to look in your culture, look at the norms between men and women, the normal ways of dress, the normal ways of speech and behavior, and you ought to, insofar as you can do so, uh, without violating the command to love your neighbor, we'll talk about that, you should live within the gendered norms of your community. You should seek to not give offense by trying to appear, men appear as a woman, women appear as a man, but you ought to live within those gendered norms, especially, especially when it comes to Christian service and worship. Right? Partly, this is just saying, uh, if you are, if, if I got up here to preach and address, that's right. Um, would you leave? Would you leave this place talking about Jesus and what you learned from the Bible that day? No, you would, you would leave thinking, can you believe that freaky pastor wore a dress on Sunday? And so what they're saying, essentially, what Paul's saying here is essentially is you ought not to cause scandal or distraction in the way you present yourself within those cultural norms. You know, this might be easier to think of in another culture. Uh, Christianity isn't limited to one culture, but, but brings every culture into a missionary encounter when, when, when the gospel comes forth, right? There's parts of every culture that... Uh, are approved of. There's parts of every culture that are challenged. So think of it, if you were planting a church uh, in the Muslim world, and you had a church that was comprised primarily of converts from Islam, what do you think the women would wear when they showed up to church? They'd probably be dressed very, very conservatively, right? They'd pro- you probably wouldn't see a lot of bare skin among the women of that church. 
And Paul's argument here is that you shouldn't go to those women and say, sister, don't you know that you're free in Christ to show some skin? Right? You can, it, 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 in our church, I wear shorts or I wear skirts. You know, you're, you're in Christ. Here's a mini skirt. Come to church. Because Paul's saying that would bend the norms of gender in that culture and cause offense. In the same way, if you were to plant a church, uh, let's say in a South, uh, South American village, where women were accustomed to, wear, to living their lives topless, we shouldn't then bring our Western views of modesty to that and say, if you want to be in Christ, you're going to have to wear a t-shirt. Right? Because it's saying you ought to live within the norms of the gender, uh, of the cultural world that you're in, so as not to cause offense, insofar as you can do so, and still be loving your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean? Well, that means that there are some norms around gender that, quite honestly, don't pass the test of treating your neighbor as you yourself wish to be treated. Right? There are cultures where, where men have treated their female neighbors in ways that are far from the ways they wish to be treated themselves. And so there is no, uh, in, in that context, Christians ought to be a witness for the love of neighbor, for equality, for dignity, right? Just because Christianity doesn't challenge what men or women might wear in a given culture, that's a vastly different thing than if you were to, that if a church was to exist, let's say in an Indian culture where the common practice was for a widow to throw herself on her husband's funeral pyre and kill herself when her husband died, right? In, such a practice, in, in, such, in that culture, Christian missionaries have and should sought to say, stop, this is not good, right? If you're in a culture where women have not had access to basic education, where, where, where people choose to educate their sons but not their daughters, Christians should and have built schools for girls, Right? If you live in a culture where women are disproportionately vulnerable to violence, to, to, to sexual violence, to physical violence, Christians should be the first ones to say, stop. Even in our own culture, where we have made progress towards equality, when, we, when Christians become aware of things like differences uh, in pay equality, in differences in vulnerability to uh, assault and predation, it ought to be Christians who say, stop. This is not loving. This is not good. This is not a gender norm that we, should that we should adopt. So is Christianity good news for women? Was this the question we started with? Just uh, earlier this month, uh, actually it's last month now in October, uh, the world paused to acknowledge in some way that yes, Christianity is good news for women. The Nobel Peace Prize uh, this year uh, went to Dr. Dennis Mukwege, whose practice in the Democratic Republic of the Congo has earned him the title of Dr. Miracle. Uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo is one of the most violent uh, regions in the country, torn apart by civil war. And in the midst of that, many women outside of the protection of law and in the chaos of war uh, have been subject to rape. And this, uh, this doctor, Dr. Mukwege, uh, has devoted his entire practice to treating both the physical and emotional and psychological scars uh, of the violence that these women have borne. And so the Nobel Society is, is granting him the Nobel Peace Prize. 
He said uh, that his calling to care for his patients holistically, he said this in an interview with NPR, not only to treat women in their bodies, but also to fight for their own rights and to bring them to be autonomous and, of course, to support them psychologically. All of this is a process of healing so that women can regain their dignity. He was invited last year to speak. He's a Christian son of a pastor. And he was invited to speak at the Lutheran World Federation. He said this. He said, if Christians do not live out the practical implications of their faith among the communities of our neighbors, we cannot fulfill the mission entrusted to us by Christ. He said, again, speaking to Lutheran clergy, it is up to us, the heirs of Martin Luther, through God's word to exercise all of the macho demons possessing the world so that, the, so that women who are victims of male barbarity can experience the reign of God in their lives. Is Christianity good news for the world? When we adopt our calling together, men and women, to live our life under our common head, which is Christ, our great high priest who brings us together before God as brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, as we look to one another and saying, we need you, we need your gifts, we need one another, only then can we live into the fullness of what Christ has called us to be as his church, leaning on one another, following together uh, our mutual high priest, our mutual husband, as we live out our life and our calling as his bride. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these are difficult things to navigate. Each one of us um, likely has known pain and has caused pain in the areas of how we have handled uh, the differences among us. So Lord, we pray that this uh, church community and in our families would be a place where we experience your reconciling grace, not only as we talk and pray so often about between cultures and races and socioeconomic groups, but where men and women as brothers and as sisters uh, can learn that our difference makes us whole, that our difference is part of how you made us, where we can lean on one another together, confessing that we are your sons and daughters, that we are brothers and sisters, and only together uh, can we serve uh, as you created us and redeemed us to. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.